0: PlushCare.com slash loss Hello, you're listening to a new episode of Talking France. Over the next 30 minutes or so, we'll bring you up to date with some of the big issues in France right now and look at how aspects of this country work. Starting with fuel filling up your car has become so expensive in France recently that the government has had to take action. We'll find out what it's done as well as look at what else it has planned for this year's budget. And we'll bring you news of a new UNESCO World Heritage Site in France and look at some of the others you might not have heard of but really should visit. We'll also explain the upcoming French Senate elections, why they're so important and why ordinary folk can't vote. We will hear about a new attempted crackdown on drunk hunters and also hear about the tragic story of a woman whose French partner was accidentally shot dead by a hunter in rural France just days after she had given birth to their son. We'll also explain why you need a signed medical certificate from a doctor just to enter a fun run in France. Stay with us to the very end as usual to learn some handy shortcuts for speaking French. I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and joining me this week will be the Holy Trinity, Emma Pearson, the local Francis editor, journalist Jen Mansfield, and politics expert John Litchfield. Two people who unfortunately can't join us this week are King Charles and Queen Camilla. They are in France. We've tried, but we just can't squeeze them in. I mean, it is an action-packed trip. The Royal couple have got, I think they've got 27 engagements over the next three days. They're going down to Bordeaux. They're going to uh, Saint-Saint-Denis, I believe. They're going all over the place. Uh,
1: Yes, going to visit an organic vineyard uh, near Bordeaux, which uh, I would highly recommend as a day out for anyone who isn't Royal, but just likes organic wine.
0: It's true. They really have got a cracking trip lined up. Fantastic. Should we get on with the main talking points and the news this week in France? Hello to the Royal couple, if you are listening, uh, of course. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> I don't think
0: they are, <laughs> You never know. You've got 30 minutes to get in touch, guys, if you want to be on the podcast. Right. In recent weeks, the price of petrol and diesel in France has been creeping up and up once again. The cost of a litre of fuel at some petrol stations has even passed the €2 euro mark or been capped at one euro ninety nine. It's hitting the public hard and making the French government slightly nervous, given fuel prices have been the source of unrest in the past. This week, the French government announced what the Prime Minister described as a, quote, never-before-seen measure that will give us concrete results for the French public. Emma Tell us about this measure for fuel prices.
1: Yeah, um, I maybe wouldn't get too excited about this if I were you because it's not that radical to an Anglo audience, I think. Basically, the government announced that it will allow retailers to sell petrol and diesel at a loss, and it's designed to help motorists uh, cope with the rising cost of fuel. I must admit, I didn't realise until this week that retailers were currently not allowed to do this, but the government will actually have to pass a law in Parliament to allow this as a temporary measure. It's envisaged that this will last for six months. The idea yeah is that retailers will engage in a sort of price war and consequently the price of fuel will come down at the pumps, which will help people who are struggling with the cost of living. There is, it must be said, some debate about exactly how much difference this will actually make. At present, retailers like supermarkets, they already sell their petrol at pretty close to cost price and the idea is that it uh, it lures in shoppers who spend their money on other things. The oil giant Total, which owns about 70% of French filling stations, it has said that it won't sell at a loss and it actually already has in place a fuel price cap of 1.99 per litre. And on Wednesday, a couple of the biggest supermarkets, including Leclerc, Carrefour and Antimache, they also said they wouldn't, although obviously this might change as we get nearer to the date. So we'll have to see how much of a difference this really makes when it comes into effect on December the 1st. But I think it's interesting because the previous price protection measures were government funded. So you'll remember, for example, last summer, we had the fuel rebate of 35 cents in a litre. That was funded by the government. This this marks a sort of a move away from these expensive government-funded state aid for things like uh, things like that, and this new scheme would be funded by retailers
0: themselves. Yeah, the policy was described as a flop in the French press. In one headline I saw so after, as you say, those supermarkets announced that they wouldn't be doing it. But just Emma, explain why retailers in France haven't been allowed to sell petrol at a loss up to now?
1: Well, it's not just petrol. Um, in France, the government quite strictly controls any discounts that retailers can offer. So outside of the legally mandated sales periods, which happened twice a year, selling at a loss is banned for a whole range of items like petrol, but also food, drink, books, stuff like that. It comes from a law in 1963. And the reason is to protect small independent retailers who wouldn't be able to afford to sell items at a loss. And it's this protectionist measure that is one of the reasons why France has so many independent shops. You know, if you go to even quite small towns, you'll notice that there's usually a butcher, a baker, a grocer, a wine seller, a bookshop, in addition to the, the big out of town retail parks and supermarkets. And the point Punishment for selling at a loss can actually be quite harsh. You will remember, I'm sure, the Nutella riots of 2018.
0: Ah, the Nutella riots. I do. Yeah, this is back in January 2018. I remember French shoppers were actually accused of behaving like animals when they fought to get their hands on pots of the country's favourite chocolate spread Nutella at Intermarché supermarkets. I think they were selling the tubs at 70% discount. It was reminiscent of uh, Black Friday scenes in the US, Jen. I think it was actually dubbed Brown Thursday by (laughs) by one one comedian, (laughs) yeah. But yeah, I remember it well. (laughs) What happened at the end of that?
1: Um, Anyway, well, after all of the the fun scenes and the actual riots, it was found that this discount that Antimache was applying did in fact constitute selling at a loss, and the group was fined €375,000 for selling at a loss. So, serious.
0: Yeah. Let's just go back to the French government, Emma. The country's finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, has ruled out a return to those kind of measures we saw last year when they subsidised the cost of fuel that you mentioned. He said, quote, the state can't bear the cost of inflation by itself, otherwise, that will deepen the deficit. What does this say about the upcoming budget then? What do we know about it?
1: Well, yeah, so the 2024 budget um, is being written now and it will shortly be debated in Parliament. We know that uh, Bruno Le Maire, the finance minister, says that it will include 16 billion euro of savings and that includes the end of some of the financial aid schemes for businesses that were set up during the pandemic. I'm not quite sure that it really is an austerity budget or it's certainly not how British listeners would think of as an austerity budget anyway, but it is the end of what they call qua whatever it costs, which was the phrase they used to explain the the generous financial aid that was on offer from the government during the pandemic, quite a few uh, measures of which continued after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. For example, we saw electricity and gas price freezes, those fuel rebates last year, that kind of thing.
0: Okay, look, let's bring in French politics expert John Litchfield, who joins us on the line from Normandy. Good to have you with us again, John. John, in your column this week that's available at the local.fr for members, you describe this new measure on fuel prices as an act of desperation. What do you mean?
2: Well, you know, the the sort of times of money being kind of endless in France are over, really. I mean, you know, France has not balanced its budget for 50 years now, I think. And there was a time during the COVID pandemic and uh, during the early parts of the Ukraine invasion when the government felt it had... The duty to sort of pour money on on the situation to stop the economy collapsing they're now having to sort of wind back their spending. You know, they're, they're in, the tru- in trouble with the, the debts agencies, with the European Commission, for the Eurozone rules. And there's a big budget. There's a budget coming soon. Uh, it's going to be announced next week, I think, uh, which is going to try and wind back the deficit and the debt quite sharply. And that's going to continue over the next four or five years. And at the same time, the government is confronted with inflation, which the food inflation is maybe calming a little bit, but the fuel inflation, especially for petrol and diesel prices, seems to be going on and on and on and getting worse. And we know from the Gilets jaunes crisis just how sensitive a certain part of the French population, sort of outer suburban provincial France, is to, to fuel prices. So what can they do to keep the fuel prices down? No French motorist now remembers that he and she were being given cheaper petrol prices than and diesel prices in other countries a year or so ago because the government was giving them a huge subsidy to the petrol companies to keep the price down. That can no longer be afforded. What on earth can the government do? Well, they came up with this extraordinary wheeze, which was to allow petrol companies, but especially the big supermarkets, to sell petrol at below their cost price. They're saying at the moment, the supermarkets, they have no interest in doing that. They can't afford to. So the whole thing may turn out to be just a kind of red herring, you know, just a sort of it may just uh, collapse without any effect at all. The government's hoping that the competition between the supermarkets will encourage them to actually take advantage of it to attract people people into their forecourts and so on. You know, but it's an extraordinary idea. It's like a sort of privatized subsidy. And the idea is the supermarkets will do it to attract more people in. But then how will they get the money back? They'll probably charge more money for the other food they sell. So other consumers are going to pay for the cheaper petrol prices for motorists. The motorists themselves are going to have to pay. It is a strange idea, but it just shows how desperate, which I try I say it's an act of desperation, the government is has no margin for manoeuvre anymore to try and smooth over political crises like this. Its finances are not in a mess, but they're in a situation where there's very little margin for manoeuvre. And the sort of Liz Truss episode across the channel did not go unnoticed here. John, just on the
0: budget itself, the upcoming budget that you referred to, given the state of finances, given what you said, it doesn't sound there'll be much good news in there for kind of households in France, given the high costs of living at the moment. What kind of measures will be in this budget?
2: Well, another one of the constraints that the government's put on itself is that Macron campaigned last year that there would be no tax increases for either businesses or households. He's insisting that they stick with that. So there won't be any sort of formal increases in taxes. There'll be one or two wheezes like increased charges for things like some kind of medical uh, visits, maybe. But there won't be actual increases in taxes. At the same time, they've promised or Macron's promised big increases in defence spending, education, health, social squaring all that for the finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, is very difficult, and he's going to have to find ways of reducing expenditure in other ways there's supposed to be a kind of i think a, a sort of across the board cut in in expenditure which will be told exactly what that involves next week but it's going to be a bit of a smoke and mirrors but budget this one i don't think this one is going to be all that tough i think there will probably be tougher ones to come as so they try and get within the, the eurozone rules and within the promise they've made to the to ratings agencies in the next three or four years
0: Thanks, John. And a reminder for all listeners, you can read more from John Litchfield at the local.fr. Sunday, we'll see the first major elections in France since the 2022 presidential and legislative elections which took place that year. But you'd be forgiven for not knowing anything about them. The election this Sunday is, in fact, to choose members of France's Senate, the upper chamber of the French parliament. It sounds important. Jen, tell us about these elections.
3: So about half of France's 348 senators, or 170 of them, are up for re-election this Sunday, September 24th. So basically, the French Senate terms last six years and elections happen every three years. But each time, it's only half of the Senate whose seats go up for re-election. The departments are split into either Group 1 or Group 2, and they switch off each election. So basically, you never have a complete renewal of the Senate. It's always just half of them. And if you're wondering why you haven't heard too much about this election, it's partially because you probably don't know anyone who's actually going to be voting in it. French senatorial elections are indirect. So basically, that means that the people who get to do the voting are called grands electeurs, or delegates in the Electoral College. And France's Electoral College, which is not the same as the American one, but somewhat reminiscent, consists of approximately 162,000 elected officials. So these are people that would be regional councillors, département counselors, mayors, and municipal councillors in larger communes as well as MPs in the National Assembly. So the people do get to vote on the people who vote for the senators, but they don't get a direct
0: vote. Hence indirect. I get
3: exactly. Know. The other reason that you probably haven't heard much about the upcoming Senate election is mostly because France's Senate generally doesn't make the headlines a lot. Americans are used to hearing about the Senate all the time because it's seen as the more prestigious of the two chambers, if you will. But in France, the real driving force of the government is the Assemblée Nationale, and they are directly elected. Even though the Senate technically has the right to introduce bills of its own, its main role is to act as like the check and balance power for the MPs or the deputy in the assembly. Senators also review bills that are submitted by the government or the assembly, and they make sure that the laws are properly implemented.
0: There is one interesting power you mentioned, Jen. Tell us about it.
3: Yes, the Senate does have a secret power. Very few people know who the president of the Senate is, but the person who holds this role is actually the one who would step in if anything were to happen to the French president.
0: Mm, Interesting. Okay, look, the Senate's elected by France's thousands of elected officials and not by the general public. So is the makeup of the French Senate in terms of the political parties the same or similar as the lower house, the National Assembly?
3: No, actually the electoral college in France tends to favor rural areas um, because municipal councillors, these are the people that would be on your commune's town council, they make up 95% of the college. So you definitely get a very different picture in terms of the average voter than you would in, say, a Assemblée nationale election. The Senate is kind of known for being more of an old guard. On average, senators are older than 60, they're 67% men, and the party with the most seats is Les Républicains, which is not the same picture in the Assemblée nationale.
0: Interesting, thanks, Jen. And you can keep an eye on our website on Monday for any interesting results that come out of those Senate elections. Let's move on to my favourite subject, the one I'm an expert at, culture. (laughs) Now, France, as we all know, has some spectacular historical sites. And this week, UNESCO added another one to its World Heritage List. It's located in southern France in the historic city of Nîmes. Tell us more, Jen.
3: Yeah, so it's the Roman temple called the Maison Carrée, which is located in Nîmes, as you mentioned, and it was added to the UNESCO World Heritage List earlier this week, which brings the total number of French sites on the UNESCO list up to 51. It's a really interesting site, actually. The temple was constructed around the start of the last millennium, so probably between 1 AD and 10 AD, and it was dedicated to Augustus's grandsons, Gaius Caesar and Lucius Caesar which gives you an idea of how old it is. (laughs) It's one of the best preserved Roman temples in the world, actually. And it's held a ton of different functions over the years, from being a private residence during the Middle Ages to being a stable and even a church. And in 1840, it was featured on the first ever list that France made of its Monument Historique. Do
0: you know which country has more UNESCO World Heritage Sites than France?
3: um, In Europe, sorry? I'm going to guess Italy.
0: Italy does. There's another country, actually, that surprised me, that has more. 52, actually. Emma, do you want to have a guess? I'm going to go patriotic. Is it the UK? It's not, actually. It's Uh, Germany.
1: Ah. Interesting. Interesting.
0: Yeah, Spain has just about roughly the same as uh, France, but um, they're the kind of main countries in Europe, in in the EU, I should say, that have most UNESCO heritage sites. I was looking through the list, actually, of the French ones, and I'm surprised, actually, you won't be, Emma, that I I haven't actually been to many of them.
1: That does not surprise me no, at all, though. Right. You, you just go to Decathlon on the weekend. Well, so you really Decathlon,
0: unbelievably, is not on the list, <laughs> although I'm sure it will be added shortly. They include things like France's pilgrimage routes of the Camino de Santiago de Compostela, the Terroir of Burgundy, banks of the River Seine, which I understand, prehistoric piles, sorry, prehistoric pile dwellings in the Alps. <laughs> I read that one wrong. And Jen, you picked out a couple for us that are slightly unheard of, but definitely worth a visit, far away.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure I would say completely unheard of, but for me, they, they were the most interesting that popped out. So the first one is the Episcopal City of Albi. So this is in the south of France. It's located along the Tarn River and it became a World Heritage Site in 2010. It's basically this giant fortified cathedral that really stands out in Albi, which is quite a small town. And it was built with local brick back in the 13th century. So it's quite unique as a cathedral because it has this red, orange color and it's not made of stone. And the history of the Albi Cathedral itself is quite interesting because it is very fortress looking. And that has to do with the fact that it was built shortly after the conflict with the Cathars, which were a dissident religious movement at the time. And the bishop that headed up the project, he wanted to show his power and his unity with the king, but also his resistance against heresy and religious enemies.
0: I bet you've been there, Emma.
1: I have actually, yeah. Of course because it's you quite, are, yeah. Well, it's quite close to where I used to live, so I've actually been there a few times. Um, it's very impressive. The cathedral itself, it looks like something out of Mordor. It's bizarre looking. And when you go inside, there's this huge fresco on the, the Last Judgment, so it's all like people being cast down into the fires and tormented by demons. It's kind of terrifying, actually, which is probably the
0: point, but definitely worth a visit. Okay, fair enough. Jen, you picked another one for us. A canal. It's not the one outside our office, is it?
3: It is not the one that's looking very green outside of our (laughs) office. (laughs) The next one I picked is the Canal du Midi, and it became a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1996 because of its outstanding engineering and artistic design. So it was built in the 17th century, and the original goal was to link the Atlantic with the Mediterranean. And of course, that was, you know, the the objective was to transport goods and people. These days, it's more of a tourist attraction, though. But it's 240 kilometers long. It runs from Toulouse to the Etang de Tao in sits, which is near Montpellier on the Mediterranean. And yeah, a lot of people really enjoy visiting it. It's quite beautiful. It takes you through a lot of smaller French towns along the way. And interestingly enough, um, at the time it was constructed, it was very influential. And it's one of the oldest canals that are still in use. And Thomas Jefferson, my fellow Americans would be interested in this, he actually came to visit the Canal du Midi in 1787 to get inspiration for similar canal projects in the United States.
0: Mm, We featured it in a few news stories earlier this year because there was uh, not enough water in the canal to allow the boats to navigate due to drought at the time. Time. Jen, you've also picked out a Notre Dame cathedral, but it's not the one we're thinking of.
3: Yes, it's a different Notre Dame. <laughs> this is the one in Reims. I hope I pronounced that right. I always get it wrong. Yeah, so far we've so we focused on the south of France. So I figured we should go up northeast of Paris. Reims is the unofficial capital of France's Champagne region, by the way. And the city is also really known for its Notre Dame cathedral, which is considered to be one of the ultimate masterpieces of Gothic art. The Reims cathedral was once upon the time the location where French kings would be crowned. And the construction on the church started in the 13th century, so it's, it's also quite old. And it was heavily bombed during World War I, so it had a ton of repairs, which actually kept going until 1937. It's really interesting.
0: And Emma, just going back to Notre Dame, the famous Notre Dame in Paris, you've got an update for us on the reconstruction, haven't you?
1: Yes, absolutely. We've got a a reopening date for it. You will recall, obviously, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris was badly damaged in a fire in 2019 and has been closed ever since. It's now been announced that it won't reopen to the public in time for the Olympics next summer, which was the original goal, but the spire, which collapsed during the fire, that will be restored to the roof in time for the Games in July and August, so the silhouette of the cathedral will look
0: the same Mm. from the out. Okay.
1: and then the full reopening is scheduled for december 8th 2024 which is the christian festival of the immaculate conception uh-huh. i was actually at um, the notre dame site last weekend um, as, as part of the patrimoine. they opened up the the workshops where the sort of the craftsmen and women are working on the restoration and it was really interesting to see what they're doing especially because they're using lots of traditional techniques to restore things like the decorative stonework and stained glass windows so it was really fascinating to see what they're doing
0: interesting yeah the whole area around there is all kind of cordoned off with all the vans going in, you know, for all the restoration work. Massive project that you only really realise when you're actually down at the sites. But it's coming along well.
1: Uh, it seems like it. Yeah, I mean, they've sort of created a whole sort of village around mm. it for of all these of all these craftsmen. I mean, yeah. they've got people from all over Europe, uh, Europe working on it. It's really, um, mm. it's really interesting. Massive
0: project. Okay, thanks, Emma. Thanks, Jen. Uh, It's autumn, which means the hunting season is open in France. So that likely means some pretty tragic stories will hit the press over the coming months, featuring hunters and possibly even hikers, cyclists, mushroom pickers, or just people in their garden accidentally being shot. It also means a lot of people living in rural France become pretty wary about going out for a walk on a Sunday morning. After some high-profile fatal incidents in recent years, the French government has been under pressure to take more action to cut the number of accidents. A new law went into effect this week, bringing in 1,500 euro fines for any hunter being caught in a state of obvious intoxication while carrying a firearm or bow while hunting. This would lead to a 3,000 fine for anyone convicted more than once. Emma, why is this law to crack down on drinking whilst hunting necessary?
1: Well, it's part of a a whole new plan to try and improve safety in France, which is really the latest in a a long stream of plans to uh, to try and tackle this problem. And the overall reason is that, as you mentioned, hunting in France, which mostly means shooting, doesn't have the greatest safety record when it comes to people accidentally getting shot. Some hunters, and this isn't all of them naturally, but some hunters do also have a bitter reputation for drinking while hunting. Hunting is a social activity, but obviously alcohol and firearms are a bad combination, which is why this fine is part of the, the new plan. Over the last 20 years, more than 100 people have died after being accidentally shot by a hunter. Most of the victims are hunters themselves, but it's not uncommon for passersby to get caught in the crossfire. And over the last two decades, victims have included hikers, cyclists, dog walkers, and even people who were just in their own gardens, minding their own business. Mm and I spoke this week to a lady who'd actually lost her partner to a hunting accident. He was shot by a hunter who apparently mistook him for a wild boar while he was in a, a forest down in the south of France.
0: Mm. Emma, your interview with this lady and the story will be on our website, but just tell us what happened.
1: Yeah, I mean honestly, this is such a uh, such a tragic story. Um so the um uh, the guy's name was Richard. He was French, but he lived with his British partner, Susanna, down in the VAR département, which is down in the, the southeast. He was out in a forest collecting foliage, which was part of his florist business, and he was shot in the legs by a lone hunter who apparently mistook him for a wild boar. He was in a really remote area. He was actually with his father and his sister, but he was hit in the femoral artery and he bled to death before help could arrive. Susanna, who I spoke to at the time, she was in hospital because she'd just had the couple's newborn baby who'd been born prematurely and was having surgery so she was left all alone with this uh, with this new baby who was also sick. It, it's just a, a terrible, tragic. terrible yeah. story. In this case, the hunter who fired the shot, he was prosecuted for manslaughter because he'd broken numerous safety rules. He was hunting out of season. He'd fired, just fired into foliage without having actually seen his target. He was using bullets instead of birdshot. He was sentenced to 24 months in jail, but 21 months of those were suspended, so he ended up just serving just three months and also lost his hunting licence.
0: It's a terrible, tragic story, and there have been and others in recent years of, you know, I remember a story of, a, I think it was a British cyclist who was shot by hunters accidentally in the Alps. Emma, is there any sign these safety measures that have been introduced are working? Are things getting better?
1: They are improving, yes. The number of fatal accidents has shown a steady decline over the last 20 years. The Office Francais de la Biodiversité, uh, which tracks hunting accidents, they recorded 44 fatal accidents in 1998 19 uh, in 2010 and 11 in 2018 so it is a a steady fall and last year there were eight fatal accidents all of which involved hunters themselves although obviously one is too many hunters are now required to put up signs to inform people where they are they need to keep at least 150 meters away from dwellings and getting a firearms license also involves taking a test in on gun safety as well but having said that a lot of the readers of the local who live in rural France say that even now they change their behavior during the hunting season for example they they to let their dogs out, they don't hike in wooded areas, they don't cycle on circle routes because they're afraid of La Chasse.
0: Indeed, yeah. Let's bring back John Litchfield uh, from rural Normandy. John, you have first-hand experience of hunters around you and you've followed these kind of tragic incidents and subsequent government measures over the years. Do you get any impression that things are getting safer in rural France when it comes to hunting?
2: It's interesting, actually, because you, you have the impression if you read the uh, stories in the French media that this is a growing problem, and it is a problem, and I know that from my own experiences around here. In Normandy, I live close to a forest, which front the hunters pour into at this time of year, mostly hunting uh, sanglier, wild boar, but also deer. I looked at the figures, though. In 1920, there were 39 deaths in hunting accidents in France during during the hunting season. Last year, it was six. It's come down a lot. It's come down by about three quarters in the last 20 years. And the rules have been sort of tightened a lot up. You know, I've been living here about 25 years and then none of this stuff about orange jackets that the hunters had to wear. Um, none of the stuff about having to pull up signs and warn people before they go into the forest was, was happening. None of that happened. It was very kind of disorganized in a way, very uh, easy and free for them and very aggressive and, and very unpleasant for other people trying to walk in the forest at the same time which is not a good idea if the hunters are around. So, yeah, the rules have been tightened up a lot over the last few years, and the hunting organizations themselves have tightened up on what they do. They've tried to train their people more, and it's true that I think 90 95% of the people hurt and killed in hunting accidents are other hunters. But even so, uh, it remains quite a problem and it remains a problem that I think that a large part of the countryside seems inaccessible to other would-be enjoyers of the countryside in the wintertime at the weekend when hunters are uh, sort of prowling around the forest. And as I say, that their attitude is... Not pleasant, really, to other people trying to use the forest or even be close to where they are at the same time as them.
0: John, when you talk to people, you know, anecdotally and indeed, you know, in the media stories that emerge, they do have a reputation for drinking whilst hunting. You know, this is why the government's brought in this measure. Do you think these fines will help change that culture? It's part It's part of a
2: gradual tightening up of, of what was going on. I think there is a certain amount of drinking goes on. There's a kind of den for the hunters up in the forest above us, and one assumes that's what they do up there. But as I say, you don't uh, <laughs> you don't go near them unless you have to. Yeah, I think the problem is nothing like as serious as it was, but, it, you know, four or six people being killed a year is still quite a lot. There have been you know, high-profile incidents recently of people who are not hunters being killed, including a young man, of uh, partly British, who was killed chopping wood a couple of years, ago, motorist who was killed while driving along through the forest. So there still is a problem out there to solve. And clearly, it's not a good idea for people to be lurching around in the forest with, with rifles while, while they've had too many to drink or anything to drink, in fact. So, I mean, I, this law is welcome, but I think it's wrong to suggest that somehow
0: the situation is out of control. John, just finally, on the power of the hunting lobby in general, we know even Macron has courted it in the past. How do we explain? Is it a powerful lobby and How do we explain that that kind of influence? I think what's interesting is who the hunters are in France, I
2: think, Ben. Because, you know, my experience here in deep rural countryside is that local people, local to me here, don't hunt. Very, very few people. There's an old guy next door here occasionally comes out with his rifle and shoots it, you know, just to sort of assert his right to do so when he ever hits anything. He's the only local person I know that hunts. The people who come in and hunt around here, and it's a big hunting area, are the people who live on the edges of the nearby towns like Caen. They're the sort of gilets jaunes types, you know, the people who live on the Edge of the city, edge of, of rural areas, and it's the kind of a demographic that I think the government is always slightly scared of because it's kind of swing vote, democratic. It's not something that's clearly uh, attached to one camp or another. I think it'd be wrong to say that they're far right or or certainly they're not left. You know, it isn't a working-class sport in France. It's a kind of middle, middle lower-middle-class suburban sport going out into the countryside. So it's a lobby that that, that successive governments have been wary of. Macron especially since, to gone out of his way to, to court them with... Some success, in fact, and that's the only reason I can explain it. I think it's who they are. They're they're a sort of strange, difficult to define bunch, for the most part. uh, The kind of hunters that go out with guns. I mean, there are other kinds of hunting that go on in France, obviously, but you know, hunting from British point of view is regarded maybe as a kind of upper class sport. Well, it's certainly not here. Not 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 really. No.
0: Okay. Thank you, Emma, and thank you, John, for that input on hunting in France. Let's move on. Right, a subject. Very different change of subject. This week, guys, I had to get a doctor's signed medical certificate just to do a little swim in the canal. I've heard of this before. I've had to get them before, but it was a real pain trying to get a doctor to give me a a medical certificate. He was even talking about me having to go for some kind of fitness test where my heart got plugged in. Jen, what is this? Why do you need a doctor's certificate to play sport in France?
3: Well, I mean, the goal is to protect you and make sure that you're healthy enough to participate in whatever the sporting event is. So if you if you've ever wanted to sign up for a sporting event in France, like a five k run or the swim that you're talking about, Ben, or maybe joining a sports team that you're you're subscribed for the whole year, or even start an exercise class, then you're probably somewhat familiar with this process. Basically, a lot of sporting activities in France require people to go to the doctor beforehand and get this medical certificate filled out. This isn't something you'd need to go swimming in your municipal pool or just, you know, to go run on the treadmill at the gym, but it absolutely will come up if you want to take part in any kind of public sporting events, so like a marathon. The idea is that you should have a doctor verify your health before you take part in some sort of potentially high-intensity sporting activity. So when you go to the doctor, they will give you a checkup, or in some cases, like Ben was mentioning, you'd have a stress test where you have to run on the treadmill for a little bit and they just make sure that you're physically fit for whatever sporting activity you're trying to sign up for. It probably sounds a little bit bizarre to Anglo audiences because at least in my experience, running a race is kind of at your own risk. And again, it really does depend on the physical activity that you're trying to sign up for. So being in a league or being licencié uh, for a sports team could require annual checkups or just a certificate that's valid for a few years. And if you're curious about whether or not you'll need one, there's a really helpful simulator actually on the French Service Public website. You can just Google that um, and you'll be able to find out if you'll end up needing one.
0: My experience is it very much depends on the doctor you go to. Some of them have made me do like 50 squats in their office before and some will just look at you and, and sign you off. Whereas recently the guy asked me how much I drank each week and then he decided, I should go for a fitness test but um, (laughs) look I remember the I don't know if you know the park run in France these are the 5k fun runs that are really hugely popular in England and they tried to launch in France but they Eventually had to give up because of this need to ask everybody to supply a medical certificate. And these really are the funnest of fun runs. They're really made for kind of all ages, sizes, etc. But they had to unfortunately stop these events, these, uh, you know, because they couldn't really ask everybody in the race each week to provide a medical certificate. And Emma, this is not the only kind of health certificate you might need in France. What about just going to work? You might have to go see a doctor before you start.
1: Yes, absolutely. Whenever you start a new job in France, you will usually have to have the workplace medical. What normally happens is that the HR department of your new workplace will tell you about your appointment with the Service de Santé au Travail, which is the, the workplace health service, and their job is to sort of monitor health of employees and check that they're not being made unwell by their working conditions. You should have the appointment within three months of starting your new job and your company is required to give you time off for the appointment. It does vary a little bit depending on the nature of your work and whether you've recently had a medical checkup but in most cases it's a standard physical checkup so definitely wear your good underwear for the day of the appointment <laughs> because you will be stripping down to it and um, they usually also test your your hearing and your eyesight and if you have any pre-existing conditions such as rsi maybe or carpal tunnel syndrome that will be tested so the doctors can establish over time whether your work is making you worse you usually also get asked about any mental health conditions such as stress or depression and if you work in an office you'll probably be given advice on things like taking regular Screen breaks and the correct sitting position, so you don't damage your back. And the workplace doctor, they actually have pretty wide-ranging powers to demand changes to your working conditions, and these recommendations must, by law, be followed by your employer. So it's quite a serious thing.
0: The French take health pretty seriously, yeah.
1: Yeah, it was actually
3: interesting. My partner had his. Uh, he just started a new job recently, and I happened to overhear it because uh, he did it on uh, televisual, so on the computer. And uh, the doctor was telling him that he really should get a desk chair because he does a lot of work from home. And she said that she was going to write a little note in his file so that his employer would absolutely okay getting a desk chair and maybe help pay for it. So that was yeah. interesting.
0: All sounds good. Interesting stuff. I mean, we should say that these pre-sport medical checks, they do sometimes uncover, you know, hidden problems that may save someone's life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, they're, they're a good idea, really. I mm. mean, you know, it, it's never a bad idea to get a checkup from your doctor. So, yeah. Exactly.
0: Uh, Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Jen. Right, guys, before we go, let's learn some French. Now, sometimes in French, you can actually expand your vocabulary by cutting it down, making it shorter. Jen, what am I talking about?
3: Yes, uh, you are talking about abbreviations. They are a beautiful invention in both French and English. Right, <laughs> right, let's
0: talk about a few then, come on.
3: Yeah, okay, so one of my favorites is resto, not la clim. You might have expected me to say la clim because clean. I do talk about air conditioning a lot. That's short for climatisation. Yeah. Um, resto is the shortened version of restaurant or restaurant. And the first time I heard it, actually, I thought someone was trying to say rest stop with the French accent. <laughs> um, but that, no, it does not mean that. It just means restaurant. So your friend might say, to veux aller au resto? And then to
1: that you would probably say bah oui, (laughs) yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah, good one that I don't really hear people say restaurant. Emma.
1: Yeah, I've picked probably the most common of the of them all, Comdab. It's short for comme d'habitude, uh, which mm. means as usual. Mm. Um, and I think it's a really good way to add a bit of sort of world-weary emphasis to whatever you're saying. So, like, for example, if you're complaining about line 11 being delayed again, you can say something like, ah, le metro était prêt be So it's like, oh, for God's sake, this is happening again and again. It uh, just gives you a bit of extra punch to what you're saying.
0: Definitely. The locals do use them a lot. Uh, let me test you guys with a few. What if I say Re? What's that? Anyone uh, again? Re.
1: <laughs> yeah. Or...
0: Yeah, but how do they use it?
1: Yeah, I think you mean short for re bonjour, Re bonjour, which yeah. Which is uh, yeah. It's like like hello saying,
0: again, but they just go Re.
1: I must admit, I never use this. No. Uh, use this one, but it's quite handy if you keep seeing the same person yes, again and exactly. again. Re. You
0: you have to do the greeting, <laughs> you to, but you've already seen them. You have to practice rolling your R's. What about Degu or even Deg?
3: Ah, uh, that's a good one. Uh, Degulas. Yeah,
0: it's it's a bit of slang. Like the kids yeah. get told yeah. off for saying degolas, but yeah, Deg or Degu, Dak.
3: D'accord.
0: D'accord, instead of d'accord. Okay. What about déj? I hear that one a lot. D'éj?
1: Lunchtime. Yeah. Lunch so petit
0: déj, yeah. Petit déj, yeah. And, and greetings, bon après-midi.
1: Yeah, bon après-midi. Bon
0: après-midi, yeah. Uh, and bon
1: app, of course, for uh, bon appétit, I think. Exactly, bon app. Is bon very, app yeah. Yeah, yeah, very common.
0: There is loads of them. Uh, and we've got an article covering the main ones on our website, which I will include in the show notes and in the article. For this podcast, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks to you all for listening. And of course, we'll be back next week with more Talking Points from France.